Welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean, pastor of Sacred City Church. And this podcast is all about following Jesus and the everyday rhythms of life. And its primary audience is the members at Sacred City Church. Um, this podcast is just one avenue to uh, make disciples and um, learn how to submit all of my life to the Lordship of Jesus. And um, today we're going to be discussing, or I'm going to be discussing, a book called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Um, Emerson and Smith are both uh, sociologists. Uh, Emerson is a sociologist at uh, Rice University, and Christian Smith is the professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And they wrote a book called Divided by Faith in the year 2000. So this book is 20 years old, and that blows me away. I read it first about two or three years ago, and then I read it again just in the last couple months with the elders. The elders of Sacred City worked through this book. It is, um, well, it says it's called Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. So these sociologists studied racism and specifically how the evangelicals um, treat the topic of racism, what they believe about racism, what they believe the problems to be, excuse me, with racism. And their discoveries are absolutely fascinating. Um, And I think, I would seriously recommend this book to everyone in our church, but most specifically to all missional community leaders. I think our missional community leaders um, need to read this book and understand um, the claims that it's making, understand some of the things it's diagnosing, because I think it's um, critical it's critical information in order for us to understand the problem um, that's going on in um, our church and in the evangelical church as a whole. Now, what do you mean? What what problem is going on in our church? <clears throat> well, I am more confident. I, I feel like I could write a curriculum on predestination, which has historically been one of the most controversial teachings in Reformed theology and in the history of the church, I feel more confident in having a teaching and giving it to my missional community leaders and letting my missional communities lead out a teaching on predestination than I do race. When we talk about race, it is so divisive. It gets so emotional. People say some of the most ignorant and hurtful things and they don't even know it they 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 you know they think they're saying something intelligent or making a cogent argument and reality they're just you know hurting people and saying completely foolish things and that you know that's shameful and I, I'm ashamed to say that um, because I think it's it, it just shows that there's something going on under the surface that we're not aware of There's something could be blinding us, could be impacting us, could be infecting us that we're not even aware of. And that's almost always our culture because culture is kind of like 
the glasses that we wear. We see everything through culture. Now, we think we see other people's culture. If you're white, you can see black culture and you can see Hispanic culture and you can see because it's so different from you. But most white evangelicals can't, they don't know their own culture. They can't see uh, the, their cultural influences, their cultural biases that they're bringing into conversations that they're bringing because it's just the air we breathe, right? It's like the water, two fish swimming along. One, one fish says, how's the water? And the other fish is like, what, what's water, right? You don't even realize what you've already, because you've, you've just been it your whole life. You've assumed certain, certain things and you don't even realize the, the, the air you're breathing or the water you're, you're swimming in. So this book, Divided by Faith, gets at some of our white evangelical cultural assumptions. Um, now, here's one way or one example I, I shared with the elders this week. Think about, well, I'll just give you my personal example. Most of my life when I read the Bible and I pictured Jesus, I pictured Jesus as a white guy, <laughs> you know? And uh, and he wasn't. He was he had darker skin and he, you know, he was a first century Jew. And I remember reading in the book of Ezekiel and God's talking about, um, he's speaking to the men in the Old Testament and he's talking about their turbans. And I remember being like, what? Turbans? The, 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 you know, biblical men wore turbans? And like my cultural biases, my cultural assumptions affected the way that I read the Bible and I didn't even realize it, right? I had a hard time putting myself in the context of the New Testament writers. Well, the same is true for us as white evangelicals. And you could say, so white America, black America, we all have our culture that we've, uh, we come to experience and live in. And and it's hard for us sometimes to see the uniqueness uh, of our own, of our specific cultures. So um, one of the things that this book really helps to do, and I'm just going to kind of go through really quickly or as quickly as I can, um, kind of each chapter. And let me just tell you why you need to read this book. And, and many Christians <clears throat> that have a problem with the race discussion at all, they have an absolute, absolutely naive understanding of race and on and the way the Bible talks about um, our sin and talks about solutions to um, problems of, of favoritism and or or if you want to say racism and this is what I mean by that here here um, and this book reveals this and it gets to the heart of this problem. Most white evangelicals believe that salvation in Jesus is the answer to racism. That what this world needs, we don't have a race problem, we have a sin problem. And if people come would come to Jesus, black and white would come to Jesus, then everything would be okay. And that is not true. And let me prove to you why that's not true, or this book will, this book proves to you why that's not true. In conducting all of their research, <clears throat> they found um, the average white person's answers and the average black person's answers were were pretty different. What's what's um, what's the what's um, 
What's the problem of racism? What's the solution of racism? Is racism still a problem in the country? What are the causes of racism? Um, What are the causes of inequalities between blacks and whites? Um, on On these questions, the average white American... Um, I'm trying to look it up here right now. The average white American believed that the reason there's differences, there's, that racism really isn't that big of a problem anymore. Most people know it's wrong, but the reason there's differences in inequality of outcome, such in, in economics, in education, in housing and marriage and family and all these different things most white people said that the problem was in inherent in black people themselves, their ability, or most of the time they said in their motivation, they lacked proper motivation. Whereas black people in our, in our society typically said, no, the, the, the problem is mainly structural with education or with discrimination. Now that shouldn't surprise us, but what should surprise us is when you add in evangelical Christians to the, that situation the and church-going evangelical Christians, the divide gets even further apart. That's why the book is called Divided by Faith. So white evangelicals believe even strong, even more strongly than just white Americans that motivation and ability is the problem, that that's why there's discrepancy. Um, lack of motivation and culture. So relationships and things like that, like the way their homes are set up and the way they've, the choices they make. Whereas black evangelical Christians believed even more strongly that it was discrimination and it was more structural issues. So like issues in education and, and uh, specific discrimination. Whereas, so the church professing Christians are even more divided on the issue of race than our culture is. So that should show us that there's something other than the gospel or there's something other than just becoming Christians needed to deal with and to, and, and to solve, quote unquote, the race problem in the United States. Because White evangelicals and black evangelicals are even further apart on this issue than white and black Americans are. I thought that was shocking. Um, Yeah, and some of these, if you get the book, the tables are on page 176 and 177. Um, Yeah, explaining the black-white socioeconomic gap by evangelicals. Um, yeah, 65% of whites believe it's culture or motivation and, uh, the history of welfare, 75% history of welfare and, um, only 35% believe it's education and only 20% believe it's, uh, discrimination only. So pretty pretty shocking there. Now, <clears throat> this so so why does the church need to talk about it? Because the church is actually more divided than the culture is, which is pretty crazy. Now, 
um, one of the things that he talks about, or they, they, they talk about, and I think this is going to help us, is the way we define racism. <clears throat> White people specifically think of um, personal actions against another person of, of opposite race, um, discrimination against that person, whereas uh, African Americans see that as well, but also have bigger understandings or bigger ideas of racism that spreads out wider um, to cultures and systems and structures. Now, what is helpful in chapter one of this book is the authors, the authors don't, they don't start out with just racism. They start out by saying, first off, race is intimately tied to the American experience because of the way we as, as Americans created, in a sense, created the cultural construct of race and then exploited race um, for, for the purpose of slavery and, and, and expansion and, so that we created a racialized society. Now, I'm going to define that. The authors define that. A racialized society. Now, this is different than just saying we live in a racist society or everything is racist or our whole country is racist and it's built on racism and, and it's only been racist and it can only be racist. That's what the Marxists say. That's what critical race theory says. That's not what this book is saying. It's saying we live in a racialized society and a racialized society is a society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences life opportunities, and social relationships. Um, and it's, it's just really fascinating. So I think that's helpful for us to understand, quote-unquote, the race issue. We're living in a racialized society that being a certain race, black or white, is going to profoundly um, change the way you experience life, the opportunities you have in life, and the social relationships that you have. So if you're born white, you're primarily going to relate with white people and and, and have uh, relationships with white people, have opportunities around white people, have life experiences around white people. And if you're born black, you're probably going to be the opposite, even though minority, you know, you're going to be in the minor, minority culture, so you're going to have to uh, interact and experience black people. Or I mean, a black person is going to have to interact and experience white people because they're the majority culture and white people don't really have to uh, experience black people um, if they don't want to. Um, they make in this book that one of the trickiness of this topic is that racism um, is always clearer in hindsight than it is um, in the current day. And so during the Jim Crow era, racism was always compared with those ideas of slavery back in slavery. So if when you lived in the Jim Crow era, you could always say, hey, it's not as bad as it used to be and just point back at racism. Well, the authors say our understanding of race relations remains kind of stuck in that mode of the Jim Crow era, era leading us to some mistaken conclusions. <clears throat> and they say the racial practices that produce racial division in the contemporary United States are increasingly, increasingly covert. So they're embedded in normal operations of institutions. They avoid direct racial terminology and they are, are invisible uh, to most whites. But there are um, statistical proof of the racial divide. 
at this time, as of 1994, medium income of blacks was 62% of that of whites. <clears throat> and that's pretty much unchanged from 1967 when it was 59%. Uh, the medium net worth of blacks is just 8%, 8% of whites. So every $100 of wealth a white person has, a black person has $8. African-American babies die at a rate over twice the frequency of white babies, with mothers four times more likely due to, to die in childbirth than white Americans. Young African-American males are six times more likely to be murdered than young white American males. Um, so that's just a, a couple things. A lot of this isn't might not be new to you um, if you've studied these racial issues before, but the racialized society is helpful in helping us understand what's going on. So the color of your skin um, matters profoundly in your life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. Now, <clears throat> chapter two moves on um, to talk about kind of how we got to this problem as a church. Um, all, it, it, it's a crash course, basically, from 1700 to 1964 to show how we got to where we are as uh, Protestants and um, evangelicals. And I'm not going to really go into that too much, um, but largely Christians, uh, a large majority of Christians did not oppose slavery because all they wanted to do was make converts. They were about saving the souls of black people and they didn't really care that they were in, that they were in slavery. Now there was small minority, obviously abolitionists and grew out of Christianity as well. Um, <clears throat> but so then following the civil war, former slaves actually began to hold seats of power and they were, they were being elected to office and that caused um, most whites to feel really threatened um, by these, these new blacks that were ascending to, to power. And so white Southerners responded by instituting Jim Crow laws to separate blacks and whites. And the church, evangelical church, by and large, did not fight against these um, racist, racialized, Jim Crow laws. And <clears throat> with World War I, blacks began leaving the rural South in large numbers for northern and southern, some southern cities. And northern whites during this period birthed what's been called the black urban ghetto. And so most during this time, most formal efforts to address race were engaged by mainline or theologically liberal Christians, not conservative Protestants. This is where kind of the social gospel really took off. And Southern evangelicals generally sided against black evangelicals on the segregation issue. Um, so most evangelical preachers at this time, they opposed personal prejudice and discrimination, but not the Jim Crow laws and the ra racialized social system itself. Okay. <clears throat> so when Martin Luther King started uh, marching, most white evangelicals resisted his peaceful protest, thought them divisive, thought them not helpful. Um, this is why Martin Luther King wrote, Jr. wrote in his letter to a burning Birmingham jail. If you haven't read that, you need to read that, that he's, he's hurt most by the silence of his white conservative Christian evangelicals that refuse to, um, march with him and refuse to help him. Um, even so that chapter three gets on into that where even Billy Graham refused to confront systemic racism. He can, can refuse to confront, 
um, the ra- racialized society. And he said, well, I'm going to let culture dictate for me how we treat the black white problem. So th- he had segregated, um, he had segregated uh, rallies. Um, now he came to reverse his position on that and repent of it. But uh, yeah, he, so he, but in, in the beginning, Billy Graham was like, we'll just have black and white. We'll have them segregated in, in the midst of his, um, his rallies. But then leaders such like, such as John Perkins, Tom Skinner, Samuel Hines, that were all black. They became what's called, be called the founding fathers of the reconciliation movement. As they turned their attention to the divisions among blacks and whites, the poor and the rich, the powerless and the powerful. And um, they believe two things must happen for ra- racial reconciliation to occur. Individuals from different races must develop primary relationships with one another and social structures of inequality must be resisted. So in the 60s and 70s, many white Christians began to see the need for racial reconciliation. Um, they wanted to have relationships across um, racial lines. And in, by the 1990s, evangelicals were described in the Wall Street Journal as, quote, the most energetic element of society addressing racial divisions. Now, I remember this topic came on the scene for me in 1996 or 97 when my dad took me and my brother to Chicago um, and um, we went to a... a, a, a um, Promise Keepers event for for men and racial reconciliation was a big topic um, in Promise Keepers. So it kind of was a you know it was kind of got main mainstream mainline uh, evangelical support you know in in the eighties and in in the nineties. <clears throat> well, that led to this is chapter four now this idea of being colorblind that the goal these okay here it is um it says this common themes emerged in interviews with white evangelicals okay so when they're asking white evangelicals what are what's the race problem why is there still an issue why is it still going on here's the three common answers the race problem is seen as one of misinterpretation with race being made into an issue when it shouldn't be so white evangelicals think there's actually not really a racism problem. People are just pulling the race card, right? They're just putting race into the into the, this situation when it's not. Secondly, there are prejudiced individuals uh, result in, that resulting in bad relationships. Like, um, and then third, race problems are a fabrication of self-interested. African Americans. So, a race. There are no race issues. It's just um, African Americans who want to get a leg up or who want to get something out of it, or they're self-serving, and so they make it a race issue. <clears throat> in, now, here's the in interviews with blacks and other minorities, they see that race problem is painfully real and complex, involving actions by both individuals and society. All right, now here is, this is, again, one of the most fascinating parts of the book. When, when they start asking white evangelicals about the race problem, they, the authors name three 
foundational beliefs to them that are kind of driven by theology and I would say might might be informed they're either it's either a truncated gospel it's either not they're not biblic, they're not completely uh, biblically informed they're just grabbing a little pieces of a, a few verses from the Bible and taking with it or it's completely bad theology and and this is this is really fascinating here here they are they, the authors call it accountable, free will, individualism. That means individuals exist independent of structures and institutions. They have free will and are individually accountable for their own actions. So when you ask somebody about racism, a white, when you ask a white person about racism and, and its impact on society, or when you ask them, why does, you know, why does an African-American only have 8% of the wealth of a white American? They're going to say, they're, they're going to believe foundationally that every single person has free will, they are individuals, and they have power to choose their way out of their situation. So, in other words, it doesn't matter where you're born, it doesn't matter the family you grew up in, necessarily, not primarily, it doesn't matter what neighborhood you grew up in. Every American can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, work hard, and choose to be successful. That's foundational to white evangelicals. Now, first off, that should be a problem to those in our church. You, that you should have buzzers going off and red flags going off because that's not the gospel. We don't believe in free will like that. We believe we didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that it took the sovereign grace of God. We also believe that sin is structural and covenantal before it's personal. So we're born into a world of sin. We are, we already, we're already sinners when we're born into this world. And so we have structures set against us. We have powers and spiritual powers and authorities in the heavenly places set against us before we choose to sin on our own. And therefore, we need the grace of God to set us free from the, some of that the structural effects of sin and to give us the ability to choose him and put our faith in the gospel and in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So a, a, a reformed Christian, when asked about the inequalities somebody's experiencing, so uh, we should never our, we should never go. Well, they have the choice. They have the ability. Everybody's everybody has free will. No, no, no. That you're not understanding the gospel if you say that. <clears throat> now, secondly, now does that? I'm not going to go into that. <clears throat> secondly, they believe in relationalism, and that is a strong emphasis on interpersonal relationships. So they all they're going to go back to racism is when one person sins against another person, and they're going to say that's wrong clearly. But they're not going to have categories. So another excuse, they're going to say the wealth gap. Well, it's just bad families. It's just bad. And they're just going to go to that. They're, they're raised in bad, bad uh, you know, a broken home or something. And they're not going to be able to see maybe the structural issues, the laws, the societal pressures, the different things that are maybe not as easy for them to see that are affecting and creating and sustaining a relate, uh, racialized society. And then lastly, that ties in, they're going to have what's called an anti-structuralism. Anti-structuralism means most white evangelicals don't understand or they don't see 
how the government and the laws and the systems that we have affects human behavior. <clears throat> They're just going to immediately go to the in individual and not see um, the wider the wider structure as a whole. Now, this chapter four and chapter five were some of the most, what I thought were the most eye-opening um, chapters in the book and and really gives give us some tools for seeing why we res we respond um, the way that we do. Like I said, it said nearly two-thirds of white conservative Protestants say that blacks are poor because they lack sufficient motivation. And that's only that's compared to half of other white Americans. Okay. And then black conservative Protestants compared to other blacks are less individualistic and more structural in their explanation of racial equalities. I'm reading from the book. This means that the divide in how whites and blacks explain racial inequality is actually greater for religious conservatives for the, for, uh, than for other Americans. He says this, it appears that conservative religion intensifies the different values and experiences of, of each racial group, sharpening and increasing the divide between black and white Americans. <clears throat> Here is a summary of what many of the white evangelicals um, believed about the inequality and racism in our country. Quote, if only blacks would, quote, catch the vision, change their habits, stop trying to shift blame, and apply themselves responsibly, in short, act more Christian, as they define it, racial inequality would be but a memory. Now, I was convicted a lot when I read this chapter because I, I believe a lot of these things. I believe in personal responsibility. I believe in individualism. I believe in relations. Relationships are, are primary. They're important. The family system. And I don't really have a clearly defined theology of the structures and systems um, of society or even government. You know, I think, I, you know, do, do you understand how systems and structures have been addressed throughout the Old Testament and, and throughout the, the New Testament? I know that I haven't in the past, and I've had to do a lot of research and a lot of study on that. Um, <clears throat> so the book gets into some some details in regards to this. I'm going to open up to, um, let me, let me read this chapter here. Access to economic resources strongly shapes life experience, life chances, and the ability to maximize children's life chances. The racial gap in occupational status, income, employment rates, labor force rates, and wealth is substantial. In this chapter, we described and explained white evangelicals' explanations for the black-white economic gap. As heirs of traditional values that make the United States distinct, white evangelicals overwhelmingly hold both that the United States offers equal opportunity to all and that in inequality results from lack of individual initiative and non-competitive practices such as accepting single-parent homes, having too many children, not stressing education, being too willing to receive welfare, being unable to move beyond the past, 
White Americans favor individualistic explanations over structural ones. White American evangelicals are even more inclined to this pattern. And they give example after example after example. Um, now, and I've heard example after example after example, even in our church. Um, <clears throat> now, here is an example of a, uh, they give a parable in this chapter that I found really helpful. <clears throat> because as white evangelicals and as white Americans, it's hard for us to see any systemic or structural issues related to a r racialized society. Um, and it's like this. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to paraphrase. Two 400-pound people, a couple, a man and a woman, they're both 400 pounds, and they both need to lose weight. And, they, and so they sign up to go to, quote-unquote, a fat camp. They go to a camp where they are going you know, it's like the biggest loser or something, and they're going on there to lose weight. That's their goal. <clears throat> now, what they don't know is they're going to two separate camps. The husband is going to the camp where everyone there is overweight. They serve unhealthy food. There are no places to work out. The movies that they show are movies that promote an unhealthy lifestyle. They have, and, and so he, he gets dropped into that camp. And then she, the wife gets dropped into a camp where they're serving healthy food. All the people that are there want to either are healthy or want to get healthy and want to lose weight. There's free exercise equipment everywhere. There's trainers there that are going to help her. There's people going to wake her up and, and, cook for her. There's people are going to wake her up and say, all right, it's time to go on an exercise. Now it's time to go work out. <clears throat> but here, so here's the scenarios playing out. Now this is what we want. The authors want you to see. Both of these individuals still have free will, but which one's going to succeed right now? It's not a guarantee because if the one person has extreme amounts of self-control and extreme amounts of drive, he could still, he could still improve and, and lose weight in that terrible system. And which is why some African-Americans still excel and still succeed and still thrive. But here's the, here's what, here's the, the correlation that they keep making. The, the wife, she's losing five pounds. They come back together to weigh each other each week or to weigh, they're, they're going to weigh um, themselves each week. And they come together and the wife loses five pounds the first week and the the husband gains two pounds and she's like, come on, honey, you, you need to work harder. You need to do this. Come on. And then week after week, this keeps happening where the wife is losing more and more weight, getting more and more healthy. And the husband is either not losing any weight or he's gaining weight. And he doesn't understand how she's killing it and crushing it. And he can't. And then she doesn't understand why he's, why he is gaining weight and not losing weight. She's like, we're in the same camp. We're in the same camp and it's so easy to lose weight here. I don't understand why he doesn't have self-control. I don't understand why he doesn't have motivation. I don't understand why he's not succeeding like I'm succeeding. Well, the reality is the systems and the structures surrounding them are different and they're, therefore they're having profound 
differences of experience in the camp. Now, the authors relate that to the racial divide in our society that white folks, we are naturally... um, Here's another example they give. Imagine it like this. Two baseball teams are playing. One team is winning 11-0. In the middle of the sixth inning, they realized that the team that's ahead has been cheating the entire time. Okay, so the, the analogy here is white America, because of the racialized society of our past, we have benefited from our society um, in a lot of ways that African-Americans didn't, especially in the wealth gap. Um, maybe our parents owned homes. I, I, I'm not going to go all the way back to, to slavery, but when the blacks, when African-Americans were freed or when Jim Crow laws were, were, were canceled, that's like the, we're fi- we found out white people were cheating. We found, like, we found out a team was cheating to get ahead. Okay, now here's, the, here's how they, they finished the story. We, we caught them cheating. We told them not to do it anymore, but we come back and we play the seventh inning and it's still 11 to zero or 11 to one. Is that fair? Is that just, right? That's the, that's the, that's the idea. So African-American homes, so uh, white evangelicals um, kicked African-Americans out of our churches. So African-Americans created their own churches and now there's a divide there, okay? Um, is, is, that, is that fair, right? Like that's a r- racialized society. And we can't just say, okay, we, we're starting over from scratch. We've already benefited from the racialization for a long time. Um, just like the, the woman in the fat camp or just like the team that was, was ahead 11 to 1. And so we can't just start over from zero. How do you start over from zero when... Um, when African Americans are already so far behind in their life experiences, in their um, economic life, in their family, in their culture, in a lot of in a lot of different things, you can't just start over from zero, right? It's it's um, you can't do it. It's that's that that wouldn't be just in their in the author's uh, examples. So. Some of these things were, were some of the most compelling um, points to the book. And um, they also talk about the ways that evangelicals have tried to solve the problem, have, has actually made the problem worse um, because it's just made it more personal. Just go befriend an African-American. All that matters is you don't have hatred in your heart towards another, towards, towards another person of an opposite race instead of working against <clears throat> some of the social structures and systems that have contributed to the problem. Um, like crime in inner cities, like one, one thing I, I went and did my, uh, solitude day this week and I went over to, I had to drive through East Moline to get to the house that I go to. And I'm just looking around and, you know, in a, most white white evangelicals probably don't have uh, a bunch of bars in their neighborhood. They probably don't have checks into cash uh, businesses in their neighborhood. They don't have slot machines and the and the you know the the gambling places in their neighborhood. They don't have a lot of these 
um, you know, these things that, that they don't, they don't grow up with those things on the corner. They're not going to go and, and use their finances in an unwise way in a check in a cash system because they might not even know about it. They might not even, they've never experienced it, but in the poorer neighborhoods, African-American communities, those are on every corner. So that just is one example of a structural systemic problem that's not going to be solved um, just by going to church or just by believing the gospel. There's actually going to have to be work done to um, to educate people not to do that and also to, to, to fight against some of these um, organizations and capitalistic endeavors that actually... <clears throat> um, take advantage of the poor and take advantage of African-Americans at a higher rate than um, white Americans. <clears throat> so, uh, again, I think this was... Um, and then they, they talk about another reason why um, the racial problem and the racialization is worse in churches is because churches have bought into <clears throat> the... He calls, they call it in here, the disestablishment of religion in America has led to a religious marketplace. <clears throat> so Americans have brought consumeristic principles, uh, capitalistic consumeristic principles into the church. And so if you want to reach the most people, you need to market to a niche. It's niche marketing. You need to market to a niche of people. So um, it's actually detrimental. It's harder to create a multicultural church than it is to create an all-white church, all-black church, all-Hispanic church, all-Korean church. Um, it's easier to market to a niche than it is to uh, market to a, a larger group. And so if you're marketing to white evangelicals, you're going to focus on free will individualism. You're going to focus on anti-structuralism. You're going to focus on relationalism. And you're not going to focus on um, systems and structures because they don't want to hear that and they don't have um, a worldview, a biblical lens for that. And so they're going to leave your church if you do. <clears throat> and uh, it's very it's very interesting. This is from uh, chapter 7 of the book. Um, and chapter 8. Now listen, and so so think about how, how um, our relationships affect how we get married, how we find jobs, how we find friends, how we get acquaintances. Um, you know, if you go to an all-white church and you live in an all-white neighborhood, then you're going to live in that world and you're you're probably going to marry someone who's all-white. You're probably going to, you know, you're not going to experience other races. And so um, the basic workings of American religion promote, this is their, they say, promote more in-group friends marriages and acquaintances. Thus, religion helps to create rationally distinctive networks and helps to maintain and justify them. Oh, man, that, that is just convicting. And then it says this, the prophetic voices that call for overcoming group divisions and inequalities typically are ghettoized. That means if a white pastor begins preaching against um, racialization and racism, he's going to be dismissed. He's going to be called 
Well, now he's called a Marxist. Now he's going to be called, he's preaching a social gospel. Um, he's going to be ghettoized. And white evangelicals will leave that church eventually, if he keeps talking about it, to go to a, a, an in-group, a church that's more white and confirms their biases and doesn't, isn't a prophetic voice, doesn't challenge them. Um, and so the dominant religious voices on issues of race relations and relations are those most supportive of the status quo. That's what the book says, man. So here's the, the negative about this book. Here's the downside of this book. This book is one of the best and it's the, it's one of the shortest too. I mean, it's got small type. It's not fun. It's not a fun read, but it's only 170 pages. Um, so it's short, it's accessible. And again, guys, I am really speaking in generalities. And so I hope, and using little quotes here and there, I really want you to go read this book. It's that important. But this book does a good job of diagnosing why the church has such a hard time dealing with issues of race and why the church is still ra racialized and separate along um, racial boundaries and, and divisions. But it really offers no solutions. It offers no guidance. It's just diagnosing. And so their conclusion in chapter nine, here's four, four things. One, white evangelicalism likely does more to perpetuate the racialized society than to reduce it. Ouch. Second, evangelicals should engage in serious reflection on race relation issues. So evangelicals, white evangelicals in particular, because we're so blind to the issues, we need to read, we need to study, we need to engage. Third, even though it's hard and we get exhausted by it and everything else, we need to do it. Third, addressing racialization must involve replacing structural barriers with structural supports. So the goal, again, in the fat camp analogy is to remove all the negative influences and to increase the positive influences to help um, to help our black brothers and sisters succeed okay um, but here's the problem with that educated sacrificial realistic efforts made in faith across racial lines can move toward a more just peaceful society so the problem with um, <clears throat> if we have been if we are in a system that has afforded Af or white, white, white evangelicals and white Americans benefits that African Americans do not have or have less access to. It's, it's the status quo for white Americans is just to keep things as they are because we're not affected by it. All, the only way we're affected by it is when, Af when African Americans cry racism or African Americans say something is unjust or they start marching in the streets or they start doing something, then we're affected by it. The problem is, to deal with this issue, we're going to have to sacrifice something. We're going to have to get involved. We're going to have to get uncomfortable. They talk about the example of, we still have basically segregated neighborhoods, that neighborhoods that are primarily black and primarily white. And primary black neighborhoods um, have a lot of problems, a lot of issues. And what's it going to take to desegregate our, our, our neighborhoods. 
You know, how, how, how are we going to do that? Well, one way is for white Americans to move into those neighborhoods in, in a non-gentrifying you know, type of way. And that takes real sacrifice. And there's a, and most white people with most white people in the book said, yeah, yeah, people should do that. I think that's a good idea for those who feel called to do that. The problem is very few white people feel called to do that. Uh, we feel okay being outside of the problem, looking in and just saying, well, white people just need or black people just need to get their act together, try harder, work harder and uh, stay married and, and uh, you know, and it, it'll it'll go well for them which is clearly not a gospel-centered approach to issues of race. And so, again, not a lot of hope in this book. The elders um, read through it. We thought it was very helpful in diagnosing, um, even seeing our own responses, why we think the way that we think. And uh, many of us as as white evangelicals were, were raised in, that free will individualism that we believe we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstrap, we can just work harder, and we can achieve uh, whatever it is that we wish to achieve. Not realizing that the society that we grew up in believed that too, encouraged that, kept a lot of obstacles out of the way that actually helped us get there. Maybe we had an intact home, you know, whatever it is, and, and boosted us up there. And we fail to see how African-Americans have not experienced that. And where they've tried to succeed, they've, they felt a boot on their, on their shoulder or they felt held back or they've felt they've been treated um, in unequal ways. And so I think the book is really helpful at um, helping us see some structural issues, helping us see some of our, our biases that we have, some of the things that are maybe not Uh, biblical in our worldview. They're not gospel-centered. And so I recommend this book, Divided by Faith, to you. And so if you guys have any questions, feel free to call me um, or to message me, to email me, and um, I'd love to talk about it. I'm going, the elders are going to be stepping into another book, um, and this book has got a lot more solutions, and it's one of the best books um, on the topic one of my mentors has sent to me. I think it's called avoiding or getting beyond racial gridlock. So as the elders read that, I will uh, provide a little bit of a review for you on that book as well. All right, guys, uh, I love you. If you got any questions for me, email me. Any topics you want me to, uh, to, to hit up and address, I'd love to um, hear from you. You can email me at justindean at sacredcitychurch.com. I will be praying for you. And I hope this uh, helped in some way. God bless, and I will talk to you soon.